Hey, we had a, a foster parent night out. It was our first foster parent night out event yesterday, and it was awesome. How many were, how many were here involved? Was there anybody? I heard a scream over there. There was somebody? No? No, there was a few. I, I knew there was a number in the first service. And uh, man, I just want to say thank you, Andrew and Nadia. You guys led that charge. We had 60 volunteers here yesterday, and we served dinner, and there was outdoor, there was a petting zoo. You could have petted ponies, and there was do- go- do- goats on leashes. That's a very Portland thing. There weren't any chickens on leashes, but they were, contag- they were caged. But uh, we had a great time, and uh, I tell you what, what a blessing. It was so fun to see parents come to drop their kids off. They were all dressed nice, you know, to kind of go out on a little bit of a date, or maybe they were, you know, fooling us and going back to take a nap. Who knows? But um, I just love the fact that you're the kind of church that wants to serve our community. And that's really what we're, you know, kind of in this series. Over the last few weeks, we've been kind of unpacking uh, a series of talks that we're calling a framework for life. Like, how do you create a framework to live out the story of God in the midst of a secular story? How do we uh, live the way of Jesus in kind of this kind of moment of time that we're living at? And and, uh, if you recall, uh, a few weeks ago, we kind of started this series of talks, and, and where we landed was... We said, well, if we're going to live out the story of God, we've got to do so. And we, we use this little phrase that was uh, a guy by the name of Arnold Tornby had kind of coined called a creative minority. Uh, anyone remember that? And a creative minority, we said, is a community of believers or a community of people that are living out the story of God the way Jesus showed us for God's glory and for the good of the culture that we participate in. And so we recognized as we kind of unpacked week one that, man, we have a responsibility not just to kind of, okay, well, I get saved and I have this golden ticket to get to heaven and I'm trying my hardest to hang on and I'll get there, right? But actually, God has something for us to do here and now, here on planet Earth. Um, But we recognize that there's this tension because there are two stories that are at work against each other, uh, the story of God and what might be called the secular story. Or, as the Bible says, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of self or the kingdom of this world. And so we've been unpacking this over the last few weeks. And if you remember last week, uh, we did this, uh, you know, we kind of established the fact that you and I live in the middle of the action. And uh, how many of you went and saw, uh, have you seen 007 yet? Okay, okay, it comes highly recommended. It's a great movie, you know, I won't spoil it or anything like that. Um, I almost spoiled it for somebody the other day, and uh, he's now not talking to me. It was actually Dave Prohl who was just up here. It's not, <clears throat> there's a breach in our relationship now because I spoil it for him. But that movie starts in the middle of the action. There's this scene that's going on, and you're like, what is going on? And who's that person? And what's going on? And then it, the next scene, it cuts to kind of the start of the story, so to speak. And what we established last week is that for you and I to understand how we're to operate in the middle of the story, in the middle of the action that we're in right now, we had to go back to the start of the story. And, and if you recall, we went back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 last week, and we unpacked the Genesis or the origin of God's story. What was God up to? What was God's plan? What's God's design? And, and if you remember, we talked about this idea that God had created you and I, humankind, and all of creation for his glory, right? That we're actually created in his image for his glory, but not only are we created in his image for his glory, that we actually have a part to play in the story of God. Remember, God said to Adam and Eve, I want you to oversee, to care for my good creation. And so in this regard, we partner with God to to oversee and care for God's creation, the culture in which we live. 
And so we were unpacking that God created us for his glory, that everything that we need is found in God. If you want to thrive in life, it's actually found in God. And this is the origin of the story of God that we read about in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now, um, we introduced a little word last week, and it's a Hebrew word called shalom. And uh, how many of you have heard the word shalom before? Come on, we've, most of us have heard that, right? It's like a greeting. If you're in Israel or around Jewish culture, you know, shalom, shabbat shalom, right? It's this idea of peace be with you. It's a greeting that people would extend to one another. But what we dis- started to discover last week is that this word shalom is a word that the Hebrew scholars used to describe what God had created, And it wasn't just that everything was at peace or at rest or, you know, peace be with you, right? It was that everything was as it was meant to be. There's an American theologian by the name of Cornelius Platenga, and he says this, that shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation and justice, fulfillment, and delight. And he goes on to say that it inspires joyful wonder as its creator opens the doors for those that he's created to be with him. And so the point of shalom, this little word that the Hebrew scholars used to describe what God created, they were trying to paint a picture for you and I and for those that would read the story. What they were trying to communicate is that everything is as it's meant to be. Everything is as it's meant to be. In fact, the picture that's oftentimes used to describe what they were trying to describe with the word shalom is this idea of a symphony. Now, how many of you have ever been to a symphony before or heard a symphony or at least to know what I'm talking about when I talk about a symphony, right? And a symphony, right, is you have this orchestra with all of these different instruments, right? All of the, you've got the stringed instruments and some of them are small and some are big and you've got uh, woodwind and brass and, and uh, the percussion section. And how many of you know all of the individual parts come together at the perfect time playing the perfect notes to produce something that's just beautiful. It's harmonious. It's the way it's meant to be. It's this picture of what God created, what God's desire was at the very outset of the story. God created creation to be a symphony where you and I play different parts, unique parts, individual parts, but as we follow the conductor, as we relate to one another, something beautiful gets produced as a result of the harmony. It's the way it's meant to be. Now, how many of you know that your current lived experience doesn't feel much like a symphony. In fact, it feels a little bit more like a middle school band. (laughs) And you're only laughing because you know it's true, right? I mean, if you're a parent, you have joyfully endured the middle school band years. We have in our house, you know, we had the viola, we've had uh, trombones, and um, You know, there was a lot of squeaking going on, you know, and that's one thing for there to be squeaks and honks on the trombone, and it's like, you know, la, 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 this is awesome, you're doing such a great job, you know, so beautiful, but there's nothing like when you get a group of middle schoolers together to play together as a band. In fact, it's like, you know, I'll just stick a random note in here, and there's squeaks, and there's honks, and there's scratches, and, 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 and it just doesn't sound like a symphony, does it? 
Well, the reality is that that's our current reality, isn't it? That's kind of what we experience as human beings. In fact, it's like the middle school band. You know, you kind of see this middle school teacher, which I, God bless, if you're a middle school teacher, God bless you. If you're a middle school band teacher, may there be a double portion of blessing upon you, right? You're standing in front of this group of kids and you're trying to get them all to work together, but they're doing what they see to be doing, you know, what's right in their own eyes. I'll just stick a note in here, you know, we'll scratch this, right? It'll be awesome, it'll be great, right? Well, the reality is, in fact, that's a verse out of Judges which says that humanity does what's right in its own eyes. And so because we do what's right in our own eyes, because we've chosen to live life a certain way, not really the way God designed it, not really the way God ordained it, what we've ended up with is not a symphony, but a middle school band experience. And the question that I want to answer this morning is, well, what is it that's caused the life that we now experience as human beings, every single one of us on planet Earth, we experience something that is much less than, is, than, than what it's supposed to be. It doesn't feel like a symphony. It doesn't feel harmonious. It doesn't feel that things are going the way they're supposed to be going. And the next part in our story and trying to understand this story of God that we're living out is to try to answer the question, well, why? Why are we experiencing the middle school band and not the symphony? And the short answer is because you and I are broken. All of humanity is broken. Creation is broken. It's not the way it's meant to be. And the question that I want us to explore this morning is, well, why is it broken? What is it that happened? What is it that took this beautiful symphony, this beautiful picture of everything being as it was meant to be, and turned it into a middle school experience? What is it that turned it into something that it wasn't meant to be? What is it that caused the brokenness? Well, I'm going to just go right for it this morning. It's called sin. It got quiet in here. Nervous laughter. Are we really going to talk about sin this morning? Let's talk about sin, baby. Some of you got that reference. It's okay. But I want to take this morning because sin is why there's brokenness. It's why this beautiful symphony has been turned into a middle school band. It's why things are not as they're meant to be. It's why we experience the brokenness inside of us and around us, in our relationships, in our finances, in our health. We experience all kinds of brokenness. And today, I want us to explore the next step in the story because we said at the outset that we're breaking down this story of God into four movements or four chapters. And the first one was what we did last week, all about creation. The next one is about the fall, our sin. What is it that happened that caused things to be broken? Now, as a culture based on the nervous laughter that I heard in the room this morning, we don't like to talk about sin, do we? Because it feels something like, oh, is that something that I'm gonna, is God up in heaven with a big two by four and gonna whack me upside the head right now because of sin? Like, that's the problem. That's like something, I don't like to talk about that. And it's true, our culture doesn't like to talk about sin very much either. In fact, we have a tendency to trivialize sin or to domesticate, domesticate sin. We tend to say things like this, well, it's, you know, we don't call it sin, we call it, well, it's just a little white lie. We minimize sin because we don't understand the impact that sin has 
on our existence as human beings. We don't understand the impact that sin has on the story and the plan of God. And so we end up with this brokenness where we're trying to call it everything maybe but sin. But the problem with not calling it sin, the problem with not looking sin straight in the face and trying to understand what it is so that we can understand what the real solution is, is that oftentimes we misdiagnose it and we end up offering wrong solutions. When all the while, God has given us the right solution to humanity's biggest problem. So we either trivialize it or we domesticate it, right? We call things that are not sin, sin, like a sinful dessert. By the way, chocolate cake is the best. Anybody else with me? I mean, it's like a sinful dessert, you know? It's like, you know, it's just like a little indulgence, a little, right? And that's exactly what we do. We don't call it sin. We don't talk about sin. We talk about mistakes or, you know, kind of, you know, challenges or addictions or things that are kind of broken in us or kind of, well, that's just a personal opinion or it's a bad choice that I made, right? And, and so what happens is we're constantly watering down or minimizing what actually is the real problem. And the reason for the brokenness that all of us experience inside our hearts and lives and in the world in which we live. And so we have a responsibility as those who are trying to live out the story of God to look sin straight in the face and to understand what is it that went wrong? What could I learn from this story? And so what I want us to do is I want us to turn over to Genesis chapter 3, recognizing that sin isn't just something that's personal that keeps you from going to heaven, that sin is something that it's infected, it's insidious, it's heinous, it's infected all of humanity, all of creation, and it affects every institution, every relationship, everything, governments, everything that goes on in our world is infected by sin. And so I want us to look at sin today, look at this story that we've been unpacking and try to understand what is it that went wrong. And so if you've got your Bibles, turn over to Genesis chapter 2, and uh, we're going to run through this as quickly as I can. And uh, is this okay? You good with me? Good on it this morning? Here we go. Genesis chapter 2. So where we left the story last week that God had created all of creation, and at the end of every day, he said, it is. So God creates, he speaks, something gets created, and he says, that's good, right? And then when he creates Adam and Eve, or humankind, he, what does he say? It is very good. So where we landed last week was that everything is very good. All of this is good. It's perfect. It's the way it's meant to be. And then in verse 15 of chapter, five, or chapter 2 of Genesis, this is what he says. He says, the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend it and watch over it. Do you see the responsibility that we have? It's not just that I'm here for me, myself, and I. It's not just that I'm here to have a good time. It's not just that I'm here to make sure I have a relationship with Jesus and I get into heaven. No, no, no. God's original story, he had a part for humankind to play. We were to tend to, to care for culture, to watch over, to play our part, to participate in. And this is what God had designed us for. He said, I want you to partner with me. So, but the Lord warned him, you may freely, and that's a really interesting word, you circle that, we'll come back to that in a minute, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you will surely die. Skip down to verse 25. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. So once again, everything is as it's meant to be. God has said, I have created all of this good stuff for my glory, for your good. Have at it. I want you to delight in it and enjoy it. Why? Because I'm the one that's provided it for you. That all of these good gifts that you have that you see in culture and creation, I created them. They're from me. They're connected to me. And so in that regard, we're glorifying God. We're partnering with him. We're delighting. We're enjoying. And there's just no shame. There's no brokenness. There's nothing gone. They're naked and unashamed. 
But then go into verse, chapter three, verse one, and he says this, then the serpent, who was the shrewdest of the wild animals that the Lord had made, one day he asked the woman, did God really say? Ever, ever felt that? Ever wondered that? God, I know you said this, but did you really say? And, and, and sometimes what we try and do is we try to get the word of God to bend to culture. Did God really say? Did God really mean that? This is what the enemy is doing right here. Did God really say, you must not eat from the tree or any of the trees in the garden? Now, Eve answers him and says, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. And then she says this, God told us this, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you're going to die. Verse four, you won't die, said the serpent. Um, he replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be opened and as soon as you eat it, and you will be, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit was, looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her. He's watching all of this unfold. He's not saying anything. He's with her. And what does he do? He eats it too. At, the moment at that moment, their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. Now, to the modern mind, this sounds like a little bit like a Bronze Age myth. Wait, let me get this right. There's magic trees with fruit on them and there's talking serpents and snakes and, and if I just eat that apple, then all of a sudden there's kind of a curse over all of creation. Like we're going to die? Like really? That sounds a little bit far-fetched. But what God was trying to help Adam and Eve understand, and what God wants us to understand, that in the midst of all of this beauty and all of this creation, all of this goodness that God had given to humankind, what God says is there's one thing I'm asking you not to do. I'm asking you not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, what, why, what's that? Well, the reality is that what's, what's happening here and what's being unpacked here is that that one tree represented knowledge apart from God. Remember, all that Adam and Eve had experienced at this point was supplied to them through their relationship with God. His goodness, his creation, everything was given to them. And so in, effectively what's happening in this moment is that Adam and Eve are having to make a choice. They're having to choose between, well, is God, do I believe that God is good, that God is the one that's supplied, that, that God is enough for me, that he's the one that provides for me. And so by choosing not to eat of the tree, they're choosing to say, God, you're enough for me. I believe that you've provided everything, all of this goodness, you've provided it all for me, and I have enough. I don't need to provide for myself. But the choice to eat from the tree is a choice to say, God, you're not enough. i got to provide for myself. I need something outside of you to exist and to thrive. And this is effectively what Eve has done. Eve in this moment, Adam following her, is choosing to say, God, you're not enough. I need to provide for myself. In fact, Really, that's what sin is, that sin is trying to get the good apart from God. What she's doing is she's recognizing, but man, I want something that's not from God. Something apart from him, a knowledge, a wisdom, an experience, something that's separate from him. And what she's pursuing at this point is she's saying, listen, God, you're not enough. I need to provide for myself. And effectively, that's what sin really is. It's us recognizing, well, God, you're not enough. 
You're not good, and I need to provide for myself. I gotta figure this out myself. And so what I want to do this morning in the next few minutes is I just want to unpack this story for us and just see a few things that are going on in this story. Because to be honest with you, what's happening in the story is the same thing that's happening in your life, my life, and our culture over and over and over again. And the first thing I want you to see this morning is that in this story of the serpent tempting Eve and the choice that Adam and Eve make in this moment, the first thing I want you to see is that there's a character assassination uh, of God's goodness going on. Look what it says in verse 1 of chapter 3. Did God really say? Now remember, creation is how God has revealed himself to humankind. And he's telling humankind, everything that you need to thrive in life is found in me and found in, my, in my, your relationship with me and found in my creation. It's all good. It's all as it's meant to be. And what, enemy, what the enemy does is that the enemy comes and causes Eve to begin to question God's character. Now, what's so interesting, because if you look at the account of what God said in chapter 2 and what Eve says in chapter 3, and reporting what God said, there's differences. Look, look what it says. That God said in chapter 2, remember he said this, you can eat freely of any of the trees except that one tree in the middle of the garden. Now, in other words, God's saying, it's all yours. Everything you need is available to you, apart from that one tree. That's apart from me. That's separate from me. That's not my provision. Everything else, it's all good. But look what Eve said in chapter 3. She fails to use the same word. She just says this. She says, um, yeah, but God said we can eat of any tree. No, no, no. God says you can freely eat of any tree. And the point that I simply want to illustrate this morning, and this is what was happening with Eve, and it's what happens in humankind over and over and over again, that we begin to question God's goodness and God's generosity toward us. God said it's freely yours. All of this stuff is yours. And what the enemy comes is he comes in to try to undermine the goodness and the character and the nature of God by limiting his generosity. Is God really that good? Could God really be that generous? Next thing, God said, don't eat of the tree. That's all he said. He said, don't eat of the tree. But did you notice what Eve said? She added to the word of God. She says, don't eat of the tree, nor shall you touch it. And the point that I'm simply trying to make here is that the first thing that we see taking place, uh, Satan tries to tempt Eve by questioning God's character. Eve now begins to, in her mind, limit God's not that good. God's not that generous that all of this would be for me, right? Then the next step is that she starts to add to or add limitations to God. God didn't say don't touch the tree. God says don't eat from the tree. She's adding to the word of God. And in effect, she's adding kind of this, kind of almost like that Satan's trying to get her to believe that God is the cosmic killjoy. Oh, it's all about rules following God. And yes, there are. But... The point that I'm simply trying to make is that she begins to limit God's generosity, but she begins to increase his restrictions. God didn't say, don't touch it. God said, just don't eat it. And then the last thing is simply that it was commanded, right? And, but Eve just fails to acknowledge that with Satan as she's having this conversation. And here's the point that I'm trying to make. This whole experience is designed to get Eve to question God's care and goodness, Did God really say? Can you really trust God? Is God really that good? And here's the point that I'm trying to make. In the midst of this garden where God's given them everything, Satan focuses Eve's attention on the one thing that God forbade. 
And not only does he focus her attention on the one thing that God forbade, he exaggerates that and what that is. And I need us to see this morning that this is how sin operates in our lives, that that sin gets us to begin to believe lies that are not true about God, that we begin to limit God and say, God couldn't be that good. Have you seen my life? Have you seen my challenges? God couldn't be, God wouldn't accept me, right? God has all of these rules and regulations and all of these things that I'm supposed to obey. I couldn't do that, right? And this is how sin operates in our lives. It tries to get us to believe a lie. And Satan and the spirit, he's the spiritual force behind the secular story, right? He is constantly getting you and I to believe that we have to provide for ourselves. Why? Because God's not that good. God's the cosmic killjoy. God is the one that's limiting. And and what happens is that he gets us to look towards ourselves versus look towards God. Well, this is what's happening in the story in Genesis chapter 1. But it doesn't end there because the second thing that we see is that Satan um, lies about autonomy and freedom. And and look at this in verse 5. He says, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat the fruit, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now, I have a couple of questions for Adam and Eve when I get to heaven. I don't know if this is how it works. I don't know if, like, when you get to heaven, you get a, you know, you kind of, well, who would you like to talk to from biblical history, you know? So I'm going to go to Adam and Eve uh, because they're the, you know, start of the problem, right? And I want to ask them this question, which is, can I ask you a question? You, 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 Satan's talking to you or the serpent's talking to you and saying, if you eat that fruit, you're going to be like God. Did you just forget in the moment that you were actually created in his image? Think about that for a minute. Here's Adam and Eve created in God's image. They belong to him, everything that they could ever need. And in the moment when Satan is beguiling them and, and deceiving them and, causing, and telling them a lie, they forget the fact that they actually belong to him, that they're in his image. And he tempts them with this idea that you're going to be like God. Not only are you going to be like God, but you'll be like God in this way. You will know good and evil. Now, we've all lived long enough to know, I'm not sure I'm that interested in knowing evil and the depths of evil in my own life. I've seen the impact of evil in the world in which we live. Now, they, of course, hadn't. But why, if I'm totally at peace, if everything that I need is found in the goodness and the nature and the character and the creation of God, why would I want to go there? And so here's Adam and Eve, they're they're being tempted to believe a lie, and one of the lies that they're believing is that you're going to have autonomy from what? See, he doesn't tell them from what, but it's autonomy from God. Why? So that you can be in control. Now here's the problem with the lie that we see in the garden, and it's the problem that we have with sin and the lie of sin every single time, is that it's not autonomy from God, it ends up being enslavement to an enemy. That humankind becomes enslaved to sin. That our hearts become entangled and tripped up. And all the goodness, all the shalom, all the perfectness, all the way it was supposed to be. We get hoodwinked into believing that somehow we we can provide better. And this is the lie of sin that constantly tempts us to believe that we can have autonomy and we can have control. In fact, Justice Anthony Kennedy, he said this, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of the human life. If that's not the secular story, I don't know what is. 
That the lie that the enemy told Adam and Eve and the lie that we're told all the time and the lie that sin communicates to us all the time is that you can have the freedom to be in control and the freedom to decide and the freedom to, to, to try to figure out what your purpose and what your meaning is. And, and it's this expressive individualism that we've talked about. But the reality is that the lie doesn't lead to freedom or doesn't lead to autonomy. It leads to enslavement. And sin entraps us and actually draws us away from the thing that you and I were actually created for, which is God and his glory and to partner with him in the world in which we live. And so there's this lie about autonomy and freedom, but we also recognize that there's this lie about the consequences. And this is what sin does to all of us. It minimizes the consequences. It's not going to be that bad. And it maximizes what we think are the benefits. And look what Satan said to the serpent. He said, you won't die. Well, that's the exact now opposite of what God had said. He said uh, and so the point that I'm simply trying to make is that, that this slippery slope has now brought Adam and Eve to this place where they're believing not the truth, not who's truly in charge, not who has their best interests in mind. They're actually choosing to believe a lie. And it's a lie that's going to lead to their decay and to their death and to their destruction. But it's not just for them individually. It's for humanity. It's for creation. It's for all of the goodness that God has created. The enemy is coming in to undermine and to cut away at the truth of who's truly in charge. And this is what sin does to us. It minimizes the consequences while maximizing what, it, what we think are going to be the benefits of it. And when you start to think about that in your own life, I'm sure there's examples when you thought there was a choice that you had and you thought, well, man, if I just go this way, I think it's going to play out this way. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing, right? And what we end up finding is that sometimes it does in the short term and the long term, it ends up hurting us, right? Because sin just has consequences that don't lead to a healthy place. But it doesn't end there. Because what we identify and what we recognize is that sin then and this story leads to rebellion, so this idea of listening to or believing a lie that somehow we think is going to lead us to hap happiness actually leads us to a place of rebellion. And look what it says in verse 6. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit was delicious and she wanted the wisdom that it would give, us, now, give her. Now remember, this is wisdom apart from God. So she took the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And so now the command of God, the, the cent, their lives being centered around God is now inconsequential. It's insubstantial. It doesn't matter because what matters is that self is at the center. And isn't that the secular story? Isn't that the story of the kingdom of uh, the world or the kingdom of this self? Is that it's about moving ourselves to the center. It's about we have the ability to provide for ourselves. But what I want you to see from this story is that while Eve listened to the, the serpent, Adam listened to Eve, and nobody was listening to God. What's so tragic about the story is that it says that Adam was with Eve. He's watching what's taking place here. And at no point does Adam step and go, time out, time out. Eve, stop. This is not what God commanded. This is not going to end well. This is not the goodness that we've gotten the opportunity to participate in. Now, what does he do? with his eyes wide open, without hesitation, he willfully steps into that moment and says, I'm making the same choice. God's not enough. I'm going to provide for myself. 
And, and the tragedy of that is that, that all of humanity in Adam and Eve and what is defined as original sin is now infected by the heinous, heinous, insidious nature of sin. And it's not just affected each one of us individually. It's affected the, the relationships. It's affected the creation. It's affected all of creation, all of humanity, and all of the relationships that exist. And what we've ended up with is a middle school band. Now, why is sin such a big deal? Why, why is it such a big deal to God? Why should it be such a big deal to us? And I want to leave you with two quick thoughts. And the first thing is simply this. is because sin creates a world that's less than God's ideal. He designed a symphony, and we are so far short of experiencing what he originally planned and designed. There was an article written in 2019 in the New York Times and a lady had written an article about how she was, she was seeking to raise her kids without any concept of sin. Choosing what is right in your own eyes. And the problem with that is that our vision, our ability to see a creation, to see something that God had designed is so limited. God has created something beautiful, something that he wants you and I to participate in, something that's centered around him, not centered around us. And as a result of that, we want to orient our lives that direction. It says in Romans chapter 1 that all they, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made uh, to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. John Calvin says it this way, that you're in my heart is an idol-making factory, that we're constantly putting ourselves or other things in the place of God. We're constantly building our life and our existence around something that is less than ideal. It's God who's ideal. It's God who is perfect. It's God who is full of holiness and he's sacred. And it's God who created us with perfect in his image. It's God who is good in store for every single one of us. But yet we so often choose to live our lives centered on something else. So sin's a big deal because it, it creates something, a world that is less than God's ideal. But the second thing is this, is that sin's a big deal because it it destroys four core relationships in our lives. And the first relationship that sin destroys is our relationship with God, right? Remember, this ideal world was centered around fellowship with God. That God designed us to be in relationship with him, to have everything that we needed to thrive in life come from our relationship with him. Remember, God came down in the cool of the evening and he walked with Adam and Eve. And if you trace his presence throughout the Bible, what you recognize is that what's always marked the people of God is God's presence with them. It's why at Christmas we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us, that Jesus came to be with us. And so we, the, what happens when we sin is that that relationship with God gets broken. You see it in verse 8 of chapter 3 in Genesis. It says this, that they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. There's a broken relationship now, and they know it. Because things are not as they're meant to be. The second thing that it breaks is this. It breaks, it breaks us. Four core relationships that are broken. Your relationship with God, but your relationship with yourself. Sin damages us. Somebody said it this way, we're addicted to the sovereign team of self. 
And the problem is that we're trying to provide for ourselves. We're trying to provide solutions to humanity's biggest problem, which is sin. And we're trying to do it in our own effort and our own ability. And the problem is that sin begins to work in our hearts and it begins to decay and destroy us. The Romans says it this way, that the wages, the payday for a life that just continues to sin is death. And ultimately, separation from God. There's decay. There's not one of us in this room that's living the Benjamin Button experience where we're all getting younger. We're all going older because sin is at work in our hearts, in our lives, in, in, in humanity and creation. And we see that, once again, in verse 7, it says, at the moment that their eyes were opened, they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. Everything was perfect. There was no shame. But because of sin, there's now shame. Fossum and Mason say this, that while guilt is a painful feeling of regret and a responsibility for one's actions, shame is a painful feeling about oneself as a person. And so it's not just that I have done something that's offended somebody, it's that I as a person now, I'm actually broken. And this is why Adam and Eve dealt with shame. It's why every one of us, when, when we, if, we, if we'll allow ourselves to go there, we recognize that, man, ongoing sin just causes us to start feeling shameful. It breaks down the image of God in you. It's sin trying to destroy who God created you originally to be. And it's less than his ideal. But not only does sin break your relationship with God, it breaks your relationship with yourself. It also breaks your relationship with one another. Look what it says in 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now, isn't that really interesting? What happens is because I'm broken, um, I get impatient when I'm in traffic with other people, anybody else. Right? And the point that I'm simply trying to make is that because I'm broken, because I deal with sin in my heart, what happens is it doesn't just land on me. And this is the, the lie that sin tells us. It's minimizing of consequences. Well, my sin just affects me. It doesn't affect everybody else. No, the reality is we're all connected and it affects one another. You ever wake up in the morning and stub your toe? The, the barista is going to feel that. Because now I'm in a bad mood, Right? And the point that I'm trying to make is that sin breaks your relationship with others. Now, it's interesting because John says that if you're walking with Jesus, he doesn't say you have right fellowship with God. He says you actually have right fellowship with one another. So as this gets fixed and it aligns the way it's supposed to be, it changes how we relate to one another. But the last thing is simply this, is that it breaks your relationship with the world. It breaks your relationship with the world because what God was up to, and you and I are part of a bigger story, there's something bigger going on that God's invited us into. Sin is a big deal. Now, um, it wouldn't be fair of me to kind of leave the message right there because you're probably going to go home and be depressed. Yeah, I went to church today and man, he just talked about sin the whole time. It was great, you know. But here's what I want you to see. Sin is a big deal. Sin breaks, it's, it's, it's less than God's ideal. It breaks our relationships. It causes us to be broken. But I want you to see something that, that takes place. And we're gonna talk some more about this next week. But I want you to see something that happens in this very story. Because there's this misperception that, yeah, 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 I know I'm a bad human being, so I'm gonna try to tell myself I'm not a bad human being and feel better about myself, and then I don't have to deal with that God character, Right? But in the back of our mind, we kind of oftentimes believe a lie that God is somehow up in heaven with a big two by four waiting to whack us upside the head, right? Did something wrong, God's mad. 
And remember, this is the story that the serpent told Adam and Eve in, the, in, the, in, the, in Genesis. So it's the same old story. And my question to you this morning is, is that the lie you're going to choose to believe? Or are you going to choose to believe the truth of God's word from his very own story? And here's what I want you to see this morning, just as the band comes back to the stage, which is cue that I'm actually landing the plane, so it's okay. <clears throat> but here's God's response in the story. I want you to see something. God, number one, pursues Adam and Eve. And the reality is that, that, that what was true of Adam and Eve is true for you and I today, that God is still pursuing you. What had happened was that Adam and Eve sinned, they hide, they're ashamed, they're kind of trying to hide themselves from God. But God doesn't show up with a big two by four looking to whack on somebody. God shows up and says, hey Adam, hey Eve, where are you guys? Now how many of you know God already knows the answer? For goodness sake, he's God. But how many of you know God is giving Adam and Eve the opportunity to respond? God is sharing something of his character, something of his nature, to say, even though you've failed, even though you've sinned, even though you've fallen short, I'm coming after you. Why? Because I love you. Because I created you. Because you're created in my image. And though you've believed a lie, Though you've been sidetracked and the enemy's tried to subvert and distract and get you to go down a different path, I'm coming after you. I love you. The second thing that we see in this story is that God covers Adam and Eve. All of a sudden, they're naked and they're aware of it. They're ashamed. God doesn't show up wagging his finger. God doesn't show up, what have you guys done? No, 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 God covers their nakedness with the skin of an animal. Which means on the, out, on the outside, he's covering nakedness, but on the inside, he's covering their shame by the shedding of an animal's blood that eventually would point to the cross where Jesus Christ, once and for all, for all of humanity, all time, for every single one of us that we choose to believe, would cover our shame and cover our sin by the shedding of his blood. It's why we celebrate communion every week. God pursues you. God covers you. And the last thing that we see in this story is that God promises to rescue you. He speaks to the serpent. And he says, he speaks to the serpent and he said, he says, there's a child coming from this woman, many generations to come. There's a rescuer who's going to come and he's going to crush your head. Now you'll bruise his heel, but once and for all, this will be dealt with. And God's promising to send our savior. He's promising to send a rescuer. He's pointing to the cross and saying, a savior, a rescuer has come. And what we need to hear this morning, while we recognize that sin is a big deal, while we recognize the insidious, heinous nature of sin that, uh, that creates dec decay in creation, creates destruction in our own heart, that damages us, damages our relationship with God, with ourselves, with one another, and the world in which we live. There's a savior, there's a rescuer who comes to protect you, to pursue you, to cover you. He's fulfilled his promise on the cross for you. And so I want you to close your eyes this morning because I believe the Holy Spirit is here. We're going to sing a song in a moment simply titled, Come to the Altar. 
And when we're singing that song, I think there's some of you that maybe, man, you just want to come to the altar. I want to kneel before God this morning because, God, you've pursued me. God, you've covered me. God, you've come to rescue me from myself, from my own sin, from my praying to provide for myself. And so I want you just to close your eyes for a moment. And this is just an opportunity for you just to recognize this morning that Jesus is beckoning you. He's calling you. He's saying, I'm here. John, Mark, Susie, I'm here. And for some of you, it's the very first time you've been trying to handle sin yourself. You've been trying to manage life and be in charge and be in control. And man, it just ends in failure every time. It goes good for a little bit, but then there's not enough good that you can do to outweigh the bad. But God's here this morning. He's pursuing you. He's wanting to cover you. He wants to fulfill his promise to you through Jesus. And he's simply asking you this morning, would you trust me over the lie that you've been told about your own sin? Would you trust me this morning? Would you, put, would you surrender your life to me this morning? Would you, would you take yourself off of the center or the throne? And would you allow me to take that place as your creator, as your rescuer, as your savior? Would you allow me to take that place in your life this morning? I believe there's some people in the room this morning that for the very first time you said, I'm tired of trying it myself. I'm surrendering my life to Jesus right now. And if that's you this morning, Jesus is standing before you. It says he stands at the door and knocks. He doesn't force his way in. He doesn't, he says, do you want to open the door? I've come to be with you. I've come to forgive you. I've come to give you new life. If that's you this morning, would you do me just one courageous thing? And that's simply this. Slip your hand up to heaven and say, Jesus, I'm giving my life to you this morning. Come on, thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen, thank you, thank you. So Lord Jesus, your word this morning, it says, it tells us that if we confess our sin, that you are faithful and just to forgive us from all our unrighteousness. And Lord, this morning, in this moment, as folks are giving their life to you, Lord, they're simply surrendering their sins, surrendering self, surrendering their own ability. And they're saying, Lord, it's about you this morning. I realize that I have forgiveness, but Lord, it's not just that you forgive. Your word tells us that you make us new creations, that there's righteousness that you impute to us, impart to us. Lord Jesus, there is, Father God, a life that you give us that, Lord, is not centered on self, not centered on our own efforts, but Lord, is centered on you. And so today, Jesus says, folks have given their life to you. You've forgiven, but Lord, you've made them new creations, new relationships, new freedom, new life this morning. Now, just in this atmosphere, I know that, that all of us wrestle with sin. And even as I'm talking about it this morning, there's some things that the Holy Spirit's just areas of your life that are maybe not yet fully surrendered to Jesus. You've given your life to Jesus. You know he's Lord and Savior. But man, there's some things that you're wrestling and struggling with. And this morning, I just want to create an opportunity as we stand to sing this song where you're doing some business with God. There might be some of us this morning that, man, just want to come to the altar and just, God, I'm doing business with you this morning. I want you to have every area of my life. I don't want to believe the lie anymore. I want to believe the truth that you are good and that you have good in store for me. And so here's what I want us to do. Can we stand?
And we're going to take 60 seconds just to sing this song together. And I want you in your heart just to respond to the Holy Spirit right now. Some of you might want to come to the altar, but I want you this morning just to say, Lord, I'm doing business with you, and I'm giving you this so that I can have the life that you've called me to in Jesus' name.